1: You know, my guest from the previous episode that he was in about the 300, which I highly would recommend, he is back on this podcast, Cameron Hawkins, welcome back. Thanks, Roland. thanks for having me again. And today we're going to talk about quite a different topic from the 300, a few hundred years later, and that is a Roman, ancient Rome, but very specific Roman economics, and this sounds rather like a heavy, kind of heavy topics that you to talk about. So how, how, how did you come about studying Roman economic as well as ancient Greece? Uh, my interest in the
2: Roman economy, I guess, originates in a seminar paper I wrote many, many years ago now in graduate school. Uh, it was a seminar on the Roman family, actually. And during that seminar class, I became interested in the whole question of whether or not Romans who had learned a craft skill, artisans like goldsmiths and so on, passed on their businesses to their sons. So I dug into that problem and it seemed to me that the answer was actually surprisingly no, uh, which, of course, cried out for an explanation. Mm -hmm. And so when it came time to settle on a dissertation topic to finish my Ph.D., I revisited that problem and I ended up digging into the Roman economy in much more detail, in an attempt to answer that question, as well as some other questions that popped up as You're I kind of dig yourself
1: deeper in the rabbit hole, as you drove exactly, yeah. <laughs> so, ha, do you have a lot of sources to go on when it comes like, you, yeah, like you talked about? You know you had a lecture that is available on YouTube that I would recommend to watch. It's uh, I've read just your camera camera's name and it, it should come up, so it's not shouldn't be hard to find. But you talked about. Papyrus, we have papyrus from Egypt and such, but that's, I mean, that's how you find out about how, how do you go about search for sources in uh, uh,
2: but, right? That's, a, in this that's stuff a big area. That's a big problem uh, because fundamentally we don't have a whole lot of evidence. Uh, there's very little written by artisans and craftsmen themselves that have survived anyway. Uh, they may have kept records at the moment uh, when they were actually running their businesses, but if so, they kept them probably on perishable materials like wax tablets, very few of those have survived. Uh, so the fundamental problem we face is one of a scarcity of evidence. Um, you know, and that means that in a practical sense, when you're interested in talking about problems connected to the ancient economy, you have to approach the subject with a series of questions in mind that you develop largely by reading widely in the economic history of other periods uh, to at least give you a sense of some of the things that were possible, uh, to give you a sense of what problems were likely to crop up from the perspective of people trying to run businesses. And once you've done that, then you can start to think about how the little bits and fragments of evidence that we do have, um, some records, uh, written on papyrus, specific to Roman Egypt, but also some observations of Roman lawyers and things like that might
1: fit into a model or complicate it. I thought Egypt has so much papyrus. Was it simply because of the giant weight, weight, weight that they had, you know, wheat? Uh, sorry, not weight, but wheat that they were sent shipping to Rome and the Roman Empire. Is that why we've got so much in Egypt compared to other no. areas?
2: No, the reason the reason why evidence survives in some quantity from Egypt is because in Egypt, a lot of records were kept on papyrus. Right. Um, Papyrus basically is used to make a a paper substitute. And because of the peculiar conditions of Egypt, big chunks of it are incredibly arid and so on. That stuff can actually survive. It becomes desiccated and therefore doesn't rot. So we actually have a lot of documents written on
1: papyrus that have survived just because of the climate of Egypt. So how do you draw on about comparing to, I assume it's dollar, the equality quantity you use to compare to Roman denarii, I believe it was the coin called. So how do you draw on right. about comparing this is how much, that's this is worth like to say five denarii, this is equivalent sort to of the way of like $5 in today's, money not how they right. don't about value and what was so
2: the worth. the the most direct way to do that the simple way is to look at a commodity an important commodity in the economy uh for the roman world you could look for example at wheat or barley which are staple crops that were a substantial component of the diets of lots of people who consumed them in the form of bread for example in the city of rome and you can try to get a sense of how much a given quantity of money would buy you, right? So how much wheat would this, this sum buy? So you can, you can launch that kind of comparison. The more sophisticated way to do it is to think in terms of what historians often call consumption baskets. Uh, And that's a process of sort of thinking through, well, what kinds of things would a normal person have to buy in order to have a relatively comfortable lifestyle? How much would all that cost? And then you can try to draw cross-cultural comparisons in that way. Uh, The problem is that from the ancient world, we have Very little price evidence, except in the case of Egypt, where you can reconstruct the prices of of certain commodities relatively easily, uh, wheat, grain, but also wine and other things that people would have been consuming on a regular basis.
1: So in in your lecture, and that's, uh, again, like you said, available on YouTube, it's uh, in talk from Fair Roman economy to the London 18th century, sorry, 19th century. 18th century, 18th century, yeah. yeah. So how... How, do you, did you do, how did you come from cross volume in 18th century towards Rome, the economy in London?
2: So that's a comparison that was driven by, again, the fundamental problem we face as historians of the ancient economy, and that is uh, a lack of evidence. Um, comparative evidence can be useful both uh, in a general sense and in a specific sense. In a general sense, you use it again to get a sense of the possibilities. What kinds of questions might you want to ask What kinds of patterns might you be looking for in the evidence? And in a specific sense, you can use it to formulate some more concrete questions. The advantage to London in the 18th century and Paris in the 18th century is that these are contexts that are actually well-documented from a historical perspective. There was a lot of work done by historians in the 1980s and 1990s on the economies of London and Paris in the 18th century in particular. Uh, A lot of those studies focused on normal people, right? on uh, business people, on artisans, on craftsmen. And that work, that really painstaking work, allows us to at least draw some conclusions about the kinds of uh, economic problems that artisans and craftsmen faced in these contexts, uh, in what were advanced, but nevertheless still agricultural economies. For the most part. And then you can use that information to basically draw up a model of how things may have worked <laughs> in the ancient Roman world. Uh, so I, I guess the short answer to your question is that we have information about how artisans and craftsmen dealt with problems and crafted strategies in the 18th century. And we can use those to imagine what might have been going on in the ancient world and then determine whether or not the evidence from the ancient world supports that claim or contradicts it.
1: Now, if I remember correctly, there the denarius the and coins wasn't always the value that they traded with. There was furs and other stuff, such as like animals, I assume. So how do you draw on the value what? how much this was, the one next day chicken, the I do you chicken, you do me, this thing, this... Uh, I didn't back. <laughs> Is that right? The coin wasn't always, especially on the countryside. I believe that coins wasn't always available. Sure, in the countryside,
2: almost certainly there was a whole lot of uh, of exchange that took place without currency, um, barter economy. Uh, but that said, by the first and second centuries CE, and I would argue actually substantially earlier than that. Uh, Roman economy was monetized in the sense that people thought about items uh, in money prices for the most part, uh, especially in urban economies. So, yes, there was some exchange uh, that took place without currency, even in urban economies, but in the background, in people's heads, uh, was lurking a sense of the, the monetary value of the things that they were exchanging around for the most part.
1: Taxes, as we seen seen, is in the, especially the German area, unoccupied areas that they had to pay annual tax, wasn't as well? And, and not in currency, but it was in like wheat and, and animals, correct? To a certain extent, taxes could
2: be paid in kind. Uh, but again, a lot of it was uh, thought of in money terms. So you end up with complicated arrangements. Sometimes taxes are being paid to the state in wheat. Uh, that was frequently the case in Egypt, right? Um, yeah. But elsewhere, you know, especially in urban economies, to the extent that people are paying taxes, a lot of it is probably being
1: paid in coin. Hmm. So I want to go, we're going to go into running the business side a little bit, little bit later, but you mentioned that the business wasn't in t- f- that they were down lineage, that it wasn't the sons that inherited the business. So how, how did that go about if, if the owner of the business died? Was it a slave, Dr. Grover? And we're going to touch on slavery as well a little bit later. But how did the business pass on after the owner died? So the
2: important thing to remember is that this is a, uh, a society in which there isn't a lot of money invested in expensive machinery or tools, right? So most of the assets that a businessman possessed were either goods to sell or, to a certain extent, slaves. And what that meant from a practical perspective is that businessmen had a lot more flexibility when it came to sorting out who got what when they died, or even sorting out family strategies when they were alive. Uh, My suspicion is that most business people were most interested in ensuring that their sons basically stayed at the same social level in terms of wealth Uh, and prestige rather than inheriting a specific business. And what that meant in practice is that a lot of artisans probably were perfectly happy to apprentice their sons to other craftsmen to establish their sons in essentially independent businesses. And then when they died to allocate their assets in, in a certain sense to their sons, they could give their sons a bequest, some cash, Uh, But they also were probably likely to disperse their estates among, for example, wives and daughters and amongst slaves or freed slaves that had served the business well over the past years. And in some cases, what you see are wives continuing to operate the business that their husbands had started uh, with the help of skilled slaves and former slaves who had worked for the husband before his death.
1: Was this to do with if the son had to serve in the army for twenty five years as well? If, if he died before the son came back,
2: that's a that, that's a you know an interesting complicating factor, and I think it just reflects a broader problem, which is that it was probably hard to plan, yeah. right? If you were a blacksmith or a goldsmith, it's hard to plan over the long term in a society in which mortality is high, but also in which your son might do something crazy like enlist in the army yeah. and be absent for twenty years.
1: Hmm. So how, how, did a, how did you run a business and how did you, what, what did it take to start a business in ancient Rome? Not necessarily in Rome, but in general in the empire.
2: It depends on the business. But one of the things that's absolutely clear is that skilled labor was at a premium. Right? So there was a lot of value uh, in technical skills, whether those are skills that you would apply as a goldsmith or skills that you would apply to run a shop, um, to run a business.
1: You're trying to just so first... do, I want to start a black, become a blacksmith. That's, I don't know. Right. Save money and become a blacksmith. That was, it wasn't that simple.
2: No, it wasn't that simple for normal people. Um, you had to acquire the skills. And that took some training. And you could do that in one of two ways, if assuming you were a freeborn Roman citizen. um, One is that your father might train you. And that did happen, just not as frequently, I think, as some people often imagine. Uh, The other way you might acquire skills was being apprenticed into the shop of another craftsman. And we have a fair amount of evidence uh, that in Roman society, apprenticeship was well known and pretty common, and that a young man who grew up in an artisan household would probably find himself apprenticed into the business of one of his father's contacts uh, where he would learn skills that might be skills in the same trade that his father practiced, but they could be skills in a totally different trade, right? It just depended on the connections that his father had and uh, the opportunities that were available as a result of those connections. But definitely the first step in, in launching a business was to acquire the skills that you would need in order to
1: do it well, So how, how often did owners like not, not necessarily richest classes of Caesar were but like commoners, how often did they have, could they afford slaves, and was, the, how was it expensive the slave market in Roman era? We
2: suspect that yes, in the first and second centuries CE anyway, slaves were relatively expensive. Again, the evidence here is challenging because we don't have a whole lot of it. We have more from Egypt than from anywhere else, but even there, we only have scattered figures. Uh, But nevertheless, you could assume perhaps that an unskilled slave in Rome in the first century CE would maybe cost somewhere on the order of 2000 denarii or something like that, uh, which was uh, from the point of view of working people, actually quite a lot of money. Uh, So, you know, slaves were valuable. Uh, They were expensive. And if, you then went on to instruct your slave in a particular skill, a craft skill.
1: They became even more costly. Now, there was a, there is a YouTube video out there where somebody compares Roman slavery to Carthaginian slavery, I believe. And uh, how how was the difference between the slave in Rome? Was there a difference between slavery in Rome and Carthage?
2: I don't know about Carthage specifically. Um, I mean, slavery in general right, is uh, a relationship of power and exploitation in which you're basically uh, attempting to use somebody else and somebody else's skills for your benefit. And in a lot of slaveholding societies, slave owners were well aware of that fact and were willing to do things like have their slaves trained in specific skills that would increase their economic value. Uh, In the Roman world, that's true as well. But, in the Roman world, uh, I think the way that Roman law develops ensures that masters uh, do have interesting options for exploiting slave labor, uh, and we can talk about this if you would like, but if you were yeah, a first, relatively wealthy if you were a relatively wealthy slaveholder, for instance, uh, you might want to put that slave in a position where the slave could run a business for you. Yeah. Uh, sort of as an investment. I believe that art. it was
1: Crassus who said that you're not rich enough until you have all the slaves that could kind run things for you. Right. And Crassus is an interesting character. And Crassus had, you know, there's this story about Crassus
2: that he owned a bunch of slaves who worked as builders. Yeah.
1: yeah.
2: Right. So he would buy up properties that were in danger of burning down at, yeah. at rock bottom prices and rehab them with his slaves and sell them off. Uh, But a more general approach, I think, if you were a wealthy slaveholder, was to basically uh, let your slave run a business, either a business that you kind of supervised yourself or a business that was entirely under the purview of the slave. And in those places, you could end up with some quite complicated situations in which slaves were off uh, running profitable businesses, that their masters didn't really supervise to any real extent whatsoever.
1: yeah, I want to ask about that because how often was the, was there a corruption occur when the slaves uh, I can take advantage of this I can enrich myself because my right. owner doesn't really supervise me, so I, he thinks I'm run in business well, but I can you know right. was there this outcome or was it very loyal to the their master?
2: Well, this is, this is one of the um, senses in which the, the power that a master exercised over slaves became important, right? Because the issue you're describing is not an issue peculiar to slavery. You're basically talking about what economists would describe as a principal agent problem. And it arises anytime uh, an individual requires somebody else to manage a valuable economic property or an asset or a business. It's a question of incentives. How do you make sure that the person representing your interests is doing a good job and is not essentially skimming off money for his or her own benefit, right? Mm. And from the perspective of slaveholders in ancient Rome, it seems that the because, general, you know, what do they
1: have to lose in the worst case? They lose their lives. their slaves, they do have nothing to lose, right?
2: Well, to some extent, right. But because the, the power disparity between the master and the slave was so big.
1: uh,
2: Masters could treat slaves essentially however they wanted to. And that meant they had wide discretion to punish slaves, sometimes in fairly horrible ways. Uh, Mm. That is by throwing them into the mines, for example, where they would sort of have short, unpleasant lives as mining slaves. But they also had a lot of power to reward slaves. Uh, So just by way of example, a slave, technically speaking, is not entitled to own anything. Yeah. Um, but a master can give him what was called a peculium, uh, basically a separate account that the tr- slave could treat as his or her own. Uh, so one of the things you can do is reward slaves to do a good job by giving them access to more assets right to a certain extent yeah. more responsibility uh, always with the understanding of course that if they mess up <laughs> if they do yeah. something wrong, you can take all of that away from them
1: yeah and um... I want to talk about and we talked about this right before recording, but how did switching of emperors happen quite frequently in the ancient Rome? How did that affect the economy and the business? Because as you, as we know, every emperor liked to coin themselves in, in a coin, and did, and, and the value was was the value. Whenever emperors were switched, that or did, and did it affect the local business owners? It definitely could. Um, but probably
2: not in the way that most people think, right? I would start by saying that emperors did not usually concern themselves that much with what we would think of as economic policy. So, you know, they didn't often legislate in the area of the economy necessarily in ways that would have affected people. Uh, There are certainly exceptions to that rule. Uh, So just by way of example, Our sources indicate that some of the early emperors, Tiberius, Claudius, and Nero, tried to ban the sale of prepared hot food uh, from bars in the city of Rome, uh, and restrict food sales in bars to to things like beans and lentils and so on. Uh, And that obviously would have created a problem for people who are running these kinds of businesses. Uh, But the fact that emperors constantly felt the need to reissue these orders suggests that there wasn't a whole lot of compliance <laughs> right yeah um, so what do, they do? The, right so on the level of policy uh the change of emperors was probably not that significant if it was a normal change of emperors um, however there were things that emperors liked to do that could create a lot of profound and noticeable effects in local economies And here, you know, I have to sort of pause for a second and say something in very general terms about the economic environment in which most people lived, right? Um, That was an economic environment characterized by a lot of seasonality and uncertainty. Of course, we're talking about a primarily agricultural economy in which a lot of people's incomes are tied to the agricultural seasons. And that meant that purchasing power tended to be a lot greater immediately after the harvest than it was later on in the year. But it's also a society in which standards of living amongst most people were quite a bit lower than they were today, obviously, but also even in the 17th or 18th century. Um, And that had a lot of implications for how regularly people could buy things from artisan workshops. And what this meant in practice was that from the perspective of a lot of artisans, craftsmen, people who owned businesses in Rome and in other big cities, consumer demand was frighteningly unpredictable. And that was just a reality of life that you had to plan around. Now, when it comes to emperors and their effect on the economy, um, you know emperors could do things like, for instance, give out huge gifts to soldiers to members of the urban cohorts, uh, gifts that were sizable enough that they could have injected a lot of extra money into the economy if those soldiers then went and spent them in local shops and things like that. Um, but also emperors might do things like hold uh, an extensive series of games to celebrate their inauguration. And games, you know, gladiator shows, things like this probably would have drawn a whole bunch of visitors into the city. Yeah. And I want to ask that about a... that actually, because yes. you know,
1: bread of circuses is one of the most famous, of course, parts of ancient Rome. And whenever Rome would give free bread to the people, would, would this, this probably a silly question, but not, would, they, would this affect the baking businesses in ancient Rome, where they, they prosper and then games like this? Uh, to some
2: extent, yes, right? Um, anytime you had people rushing into the city in huge quantity, that's going to, Increase the demand for a lot of basic services, uh, whether, I mean, food services in particular, uh, because you've got a lot of hungry people coming in to watch gladiator shows or whatever, or, or yeah. just to be in the city during these, these incredibly important and interesting political moments. So yes, uh, things like this could create uh, huge local spikes in demand. And to some extent, you know, that filters through in our evidence Uh, So we do have some remarks of the way in which governors wandering around through provinces would affect local economies. Uh, Roman governor would usually pause in major cities in his province where he'd hold court for a few weeks. And we have sources, for example, Diocasius, a later source, who remark on the fact that when the governor is in residence and holding court, people come from all over the place. Uh, right, and the local economy will just literally swell, and yeah. there's lots of demand for basic services and goods and things like that.
1: I mean, considering that then, first gave bread for free, that had to pay for the money they just pay for the bread, well, the, business, local business, but they gave out bread to the people. Was in this case, like bread and circuses. right? So the bread question is
2: interesting. Um, in Rome, there was uh, a handout of. Grain, probably, possibly bread, uh, depending on the period. Uh, but it wasn't available to everyone. Uh, there was usually a, uh, essentially a list, right? You had to yeah. qualify, and qualifications generally tended to be citizenship.
1: Yeah, we talked about uh, and, this in uh, the Gladiator episode where you had right. a patron who gave out tickets to, lunch and to, the, to the games and etc.
2: That could happen too. Uh, but just sort of on a day-to-day level, uh, you know, people did, at least a certain number of Roman citizens in the city of Rome, did receive grain from the state, right? And that, that was important, too, because it basically freed up money for spending on other things. Uh, although, you know, we could argue about the extent of spending power that actually did inject into the economy uh, it was certainly significant, possibly not
1: as high as might seem the case at first glance. So was, was, was it a stable economy was, or did it have, like, to compare with the, 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 the market crash in 2008, for example, did that happen in Rome as well? And how did that affect businesses if, if, if it happened if there was a market crash of the economy?
2: When that happened, it tended to be, um, a, you know, a crisis of confidence, I guess, right, when everybody came, became concerned about outstanding credit and you end up with a sudden liquidity crisis. And I'm sure that those moments affected not just the people whose voices are heard in the sources, um, that is rich aristocrats, (laughs) but also normal people, uh, simply because there was a lot of credit in levels of the economy that normal people participated in as well, um, largely because, again, in a world in which income is seasonal, there would have been big chunks of the year when you simply didn't have cash on hand to go buy anything you needed. And in those moments, you might go to a pawn shop and pawn something valuable for a cash loan. But if you had a pre existing relationship with a shopkeeper, a baker, for example, or a barkeep or something like that, um, you could perhaps talk that person into keeping a tab for you, right? And basically just advancing credit to you. And that worked, except for these moments when everybody <laughs> suddenly became concerned about the ability of their customers to pay off loans. And, and then those moments could become stressful for all concerned. Yeah.
1: So that's, I want to know you, I'm, something you touched on as well is the, because as we know, the Roman emperors like to build things and yes. you, you talked about this in your, in your, uh, just your, yeah, you talked about this in the video as well. And uh, how did, but you said that Roman art building projects were business in the winter. Why was this? And how often, How did this affect the unemployment and employment in ancient Rome? Whenever, How often was this occurrence? Right. So, you know,
2: building is an important sector of the economy, especially in Rome, where you had a lot of wealthy aristocrats, including emperors, spending a lot of money on projects, whether we're talking about private houses or I guess things more like public infrastructure um, yeah. gifts to the, the population of Rome. And it probably... And employed... I, want
1: add, I want to add to the question, because how, how sure. many of these builders were slaves that were? Um,
2: it's difficult to know. The thing about building is that, like a lot of other sectors of the economy, it generated a demand both for skilled labor and unskilled labor, yeah. right? Uh, in the city of Rome, what you had was a fairly large population. You also had these seems... stay
1: workers, right? That you yes,
2: exactly. So you probably had a large population of people who were underemployed for much of the year. And the building sector probably employed a lot of these people as relatively unskilled workers who were doing things like carting stuff around, Um, hauling building materials and so on. But of course, a building project also required a good amount of skilled labor. And that's where things became very complicated. Uh, The building industry in the ancient world, like a lot of construction industries today, seems to have been organized in a a subcontracting model. Uh, So if you were, let's say, a, a Roman aristocrat who wanted to build a house, you would probably go talk to an architect or to a master builder a little bit and you know hash out what you wanted, draw up a plan if you will, authorize a budget, and then that architect or master builder would subcontract with specialists for a lot of the work and those subcontractors would then be responsible for uh, arranging labor within their own spheres of responsibility. And the arrangements that they would create could be quite complicated To a certain extent, uh, you know, a subcontractor, let's say somebody who specialized in interior woodwork, somebody like that would probably own one or two slaves who were the core workforce of his business. But depending on the project, he might need to supplement that workforce by hiring additional people, which he could to a certain extent. If they were unskilled, it was relatively easy if he needed skilled labor, it could get a little bit more difficult because skilled labor was at a premium. Yeah. Um, but in was, those was it,
0: this
1: might sound like a weird question, but was, was it preferred to unskilled labor because they were cheaper, I assume, than over skilled labor, who was assumed more expensive? Yeah.
2: Yes. Uh, the problem is that in Rome, there are lots and lots and lots of people with, uh, let's say, marginal skills. So unskilled labor is always plentiful and abundant, and it can be hired at a moment's notice.
0: Yeah.
2: Skilled labor is scarce because as I mentioned at the beginning of our interview, uh, basically to acquire skills was an investment, yeah. right? You had to undertake some kind of apprenticeship or training. And depending on uh, you know how, how poor you think the population was, it may have actually been difficult For people to access training, simply because uh, the value of a son's work in a poor household in the moment was probably more than the future earnings he could make as a skilled laborer. Right. So there was an opportunity cost problem that came into play. Uh, So skilled labor does seem to have been scarce. Skilled workers earned more than unskilled workers. That's the the real indication that skilled laborers. That hasn't changed. uh, Yeah. Right. Um, And that, you know, that that could generate problems if you were a businessman trying to match your own labor supply with the amount of business you were hauling in at any given moment. Uh, And it looks like what a lot of businessmen did was rely on slavery, interestingly enough, to solve this problem. Um, What they would do is they would have a couple of slaves, probably as the core elements of their businesses. And as their businesses expanded, you know, if they were feeling confident about the future, they might acquire another slave to expand their workforce a little bit. But then they would do something strange. They would set one of their slaves free. But, and here's the important thing, uh, it would not be an unlimited freedom, right? They would impose a condition and the condition would be, okay, I'm setting you free, but in exchange for freedom, you owe me a thousand days of work and I can call those in whenever I would like. Uh, And what that essentially creates is a reserve of skilled workers whom you can call on when things get really busy and you need the extra help. So in any kind of production, uh, where we're talking about the manufacture of skilled, uh, of of objects that require skilled laborers, you ended up with a workforce that consisted of free people who were skilled, as well as slaves or former slaves who were skilled, and then free people who were unskilled, (laughs) right, providing a lot of, of, of additional supplemental labor.
1: Now, of course, I want to, as we are in the middle of, or hopefully at the end of a pandemic, I want to ask, did pandemics <laughs> in ancient Rome affect, uh, I assume, they did. economy? And did, did people find ways to earn, uh, earn a fortune on, the, on, the, on pandemics in the, the ancient area, I assume?
2: So they almost certainly did affect the economy, although the effects could be hard to track. Uh, the big example that everybody talks about is the Antonine Plague of the second century, And we do have some evidence that it created enough mortality uh, to basically generate more scarcity in the labor market than was normally the case, especially in skilled segments. And of course, in moments like that, it becomes possible for workers to earn a little bit more uh, because their services are in short supply. So that did happen unquestionably. Um, But there were, you know, there were some interesting persistent effects related to the disease environment as well that are interesting in their own right. And one example concerns the seasonal rhythm of malaria, which was a problem in Rome, uh, in other areas of the Mediterranean world as well. Malaria is largely a seasonal pathogen. It's transmitted, of course, by mosquitoes who are breeding normally over the summer. Uh, So the malarial months in Rome tended to be August and September. And these were recognized as months of the year when people just died more frequently than they did at other times of the year. And, you know, one could imagine that that would have a lot of effects on the economy as well. Uh, Its most direct effect, I guess, was to encourage wealthier people who lived in Rome to get out of the city for a couple of months during the summer and to go visit their country estates. Yeah. And, you know, moments like that, actually, if you were a, an artisan in the city, those moments were bad because most of your wealthy customers were not in town. Um, so you weren't commanding a lot of Did, did they
1: think about moving with the wealthy wealthy people that the the artisans?
2: They don't seem to have done so. No, um, they, they remained basically focused on their own work in the city. I mean, it would have been difficult to, uh, to move anywhere where you could command enough business from multiple clients to the same degree right, to make it worthwhile. Uh, so probably artisans stayed in the citizen mostly, or stayed in the city mostly. Those in the lower half of the economic spectrum, people who were hard up in terms of cash might uh, actually wander off late in the summer to pick up work on farms. Uh, by October, for example, the grapes are being harvested. So there was a lot of work out in the countryside that need to be done uh, so some people might go up to pick up paying jobs
1: yeah. like that
2: for a little while then come back to Rome.
1: I know you said this is in your area but I still want to touch on it of course So we have to talk about the third century for a little bit so how right. did the third century affect, affect the economy and I, I know you said it's just in your area but I still want to feel like I have to touch up on it.
2: Sure. Well, I mean, the third area is a a moment of intense political crisis. Yeah. Right. Uh, But it also creates economic crisis uh, for a number of reasons. Is this Um, where it's hard to
1: see the East prosper and the West fall, I assume? Um,
2: To a certain extent. But, you know, the economies of the Eastern Roman Empire had always been pretty healthy. Uh, There you're dealing with uh, older established economies, um, older established cities. Uh, The main problem You know, the straight up economic problem of the third century crisis is one of devaluation of the currency, right? Um, Less and less precious metal was being used to strike coins. And one immediate result was essentially a form of inflation, right? As people realized that the currency in which they were trading was no longer as valuable as older series. And that created a lot of price instability in the short term. Uh, even in the long term, it created a new normal, uh, right, a new regime of prices in the third century and led to efforts on the part of the imperial government by the end of the third century crisis to pass this yeah. strange thing called the Price Edict, mm-hmm. right? Diocletian's Price Edict, which attempted to establish maximum prices for a whole range of commodities, manufactured goods and labor. Hmm.
1: Thank you. so much coming, I think, to cover the basics of uh... Roman news, I know you got a lot of uh, great papers to grade, and, uh, and I want to keep you waiting more than you have to. So before you go, do you have anything you wish to promote, any social media where people might find you, anything you wish for me to share in the description?
2: Well, I do have a webpage. Uh, you can find me at the University of Rochester, and that lists most of my publications. It will also link you to things uh, like the interview I did on YouTube. And assuming that I can find the time to update it, it should also hopefully link people to the interview we did on the 300. And once this is available, I'll put the link there as well. Fantastic.
1: Thank you so much for coming. This has been The Datish World. Today we are taking a look at the Roman economy. And uh, we are available on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you can find us. Please take time if you have uh, have an iPhone to take your rate us on iTunes and Apple Podcasts. That will help us tremendously. You can find us on social media on Instagram and the world.h12. My name is Alan, and please like, share, and subscribe. And I'll see you next time. Thanks very much.
0: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well,